Rudy Giuliani concedes he made false statements about Georgia election workers. This election was a sham. It was an embarrassment to the citizens of your state. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. Patricia Murphy is on a well-deserved vacation. If you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you like what you hear, leave a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. So he said Patricia Murphy is still on her vacation, but Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent and a member of Team Jolt is here in her place. Tia, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. So glad to be chatting with you today. Well, we have a packed episode. We're going to be talking about Giuliani acknowledging his false statements about Georgia's election workers, a UPS deal with Teamsters Union that gets bipartisan acclaim, and why Republicans are piling on Brad Raffensperger once again. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's start with this bombshell, Tia, facing a defamation lawsuit. Rudy Giuliani filed a motion this week saying he was no longer contesting accusations that he made false statements about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Those are two Fulton County election workers he wrongly accused of committing voter fraud. The lawsuit accuses Giuliani and others of promoting a video that he wrongly claimed showed the mother and daughter duo of manipulating ballots at State Farm Arena. That fueled all these pro-Trump conspiracy theories that we know to be a lie. And Tia, now Giuliani is making that concession in court. Yeah, it's kind of was like a shocking development because Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the mother-daughter team, have accused Rudy Giuliani and others of defamation, saying, you know, he falsely said we were passing a thumb drive with ballots. And, and, and you know, it's not just that he said it in general terms. He actually would call them out by name repeatedly. And and so they said he defamed us. And and so it's just like he's still contesting the defamation lawsuit. But now it's like, how do you do that when you're no longer contesting the key claim, which is that you told lies about them? Yeah, he's keeping his legal options open. Here's what he said about those Fulton County election workers at legislative hearings back in 2020 here in Georgia. That woman, look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room, hiding around. They look like this. They look like they're passing out dope. Right, he's accusing them of, of drug dealing while, while counting Fulton County ballots. And let's talk about the effect this had on Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. They said their lives were upended. They got death threats. They went into hiding. They're worried about using their real names at the grocery store. And of course, later we found out that the purported USB drive uh, that Giuliani and others said they were passing to each other was in fact a ginger mint. Yeah, it was their testimony during the um, House um, Select Committee on January 6th, those public hearings that we know kind of 
kind of gripped the nation last year. Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman were some of the most emotional testimony that we heard in any of the hearings. And they really talked about, you know, being tracked down on social media and people sending them racist messages, people finding their address and knocking on their door. Um, You know, they said they were really in in fear. They really talked about kind of losing the life they knew and having to really become shells of themselves. And, and, you know, they made it clear that they felt it was all based on lies perpetrated by former President Trump and his allies, including Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. And, you know, these were the accusations that came the Georgia Capitol in three separate hearings, two were held by Senate one held by the Georgia House, they came at a really fraught time. That was when some Georgia Republicans were promoting lies about widespread election fraud that that they said took place in Georgia, which didn't. Others were already acknowledging Trump's defeat and begging conservatives to focus on the Senate runoffs that would take place in just a, a few weeks. Let's hear a snippet of the sort of rhetoric that Giuliani was promoting here in Georgia. But there's more than ample evidence to conclude that this election was a sham. It was an embarrassment to the citizens of your state. It's, it's kind of like an elf in Wonderland moment where you've gone down a rabbit hole and through the, through the looking glass, everything gets wavy and seems really confusing. But to me, that seems like a sort of alternate universe that we don't have a lot of evidence of. Uh, that second voice was State Senator Elena Parent who was among the Democrats in the room for those hearings, because these weren't just Republican hearings, these were bipartisan hearings, but it was the Democrats who were warning that these were full of falsehoods, full of conspiracy theories, full of election fraud fantasies. And Elena Parent was just one of many Democrats who were saying at the time that these statements were false, that they were spreading lies. And right now, Democrats feel pretty vindicated now that they have Rudy Giuliani on the record saying, indeed, that he conceded that he was spreading lies about these two elections workers. Right. And it's just another example of kind of this partisan divide that centers around the 2020 election where, you know, Trump and his allies, again, were telling lies, spreading misinformation because he lost the election And the unfortunate part is not only did a lot of Republicans believe it then, but three years later, a lot of Republican voters still believe the lies. So the question is, will things like Rudy Giuliani's recent statement admitting that what he said was false, will they catch on among those skeptical conservative voters? Will it change any minds? Um, But so far, that hasn't happened. Yeah, I can tell you, not just Democrats were feeling pretty vindicated. There's a lot of mainstream Republicans um, who took the side of Raffensperger and Governor Kemp and Chris Carr and other Republican elected officials who were pleading with Republicans at the time to focus on the future and not the past. They were feeling pretty vindicated. If you remember way back in 2020, even as Rudy Giuliani was at those hearings here in Georgia, you know, promoting all those false claims and conspiracy theories and lies. It was Governor Brian Kemp who, and his aides who were pushing back at some of that rhetoric saying there was one moment in particular that stands out when Rudy Giuliani was attacking the GBI's audit of absentee ballots. And Brian Kemp was saying, you're now attacking 
the state's police arm, the, the, the hardworking men and women of, of the Georgia Law Enforcement Bureau, the Bureau of Investigation? What are you doing here? And that, that to me, just crystallized the division between the MAGA crowd and the mainstream Republicans at a time before it was really, you know, we were just seeing those, those, those divides gel. Now, of course, those schisms are deeply entrenched in Georgia Republican politics. But at the time, uh, they were just starting to, to form even deeper. And now, now we know where that's gotten us. And yeah, I, that your point is so well taken, but it also, to me, leaves some curiosity because we know that Governor Kemp, Secretary of State Raffensperger, were very vocal about the misinformation and the lies. They were very direct. The election was fair. Uh, President Biden won. Donald Trump lost. They were very secure in that, very resolute. They did not. They stood up to Trump and his allies in ways that really, you know, said, hey, we're going to stand for the truth. However, when it was used for political reasons, for example, to pass Senate Bill 202 and those changes to election laws, no, they did not cite lies or misinformation, but they capitalized on, you know, the skepticism that the lies and the misinformation created. And so to me, that did blur the lines because, no, you're not saying the election was stolen, but you're passing new laws that really had no basis in like actually what happened other than responding to the people who said the elections were stolen. And, that, you know, I get it. It's politics. Those were choices that, you know, Secretary of State and the governor made. But that, to me, helped blur the line. So it's not as clear. And again, there are people who are skeptical about the outcome of the election who cite some of those decisions as further evidence that perhaps there was something wrong in 2020. Yeah, I definitely remember doing the debate over SB 202, the election rewrite back in 2021, where Republican sponsors of that measure would point to polls that showed a significant number of Republicans and an even more significant number of Trump supporters did not have confidence in the electoral process. And so they were using those polls to say, this is why we need an election rewrite. This is why we need new election laws. And of course, that what what's to blame or who is the one of the main forces to blame for that lack of confidence in election laws is Donald Trump. Because as we know, way back in 2015 and 2016, even before his first run, his 2016 successful run for president, he was saying there would be millions of, of fraudulent mail ballots. And he was already kind of seeding these fears and these concerns up through the 2020 election even as folks were going to vote by mail, he was warning that vote by mail was fraud. And of course, in states like Georgia, Republicans used to dominate the, the absentee ballot. And now we've come to this weird spot where Republicans are now, uh, Josh McCoon, the Georgia GOP chair, other key Republicans are now embracing early voting by mail, embracing these issues that, that Donald Trump has for years warned was rife with fraud, even though there's no evidence to that whatsoever. And that lack of evidence is was a lot of the Democrats. And quite frankly, even when we, the media, was trying to understand the genesis and the justification of Senate Bill 202, you know, we couldn't find a lot of clear evidence that it was necessary and again, that's part of the wider conversation that we find ourselves now where you poll Republicans, 
They might not necessarily say that they're all in for Trump. Some Many do, as we know. But even those who are ready to move on for Trump, there's still still a lot of skepticism about our nation's election system. And I know we're going to talk more about that later in the podcast. Yeah. Well, I reached out to several of the Republican officials who welcomed Rudy Giuliani at these three meetings. Um, one was virtual, two were in person. But these three meetings at the Capitol on December 20, again, a really fraught time in, in Georgia politics. Um, none of the Republican officials who welcomed and invited Giuliani would comment uh, on this new revelation in these court filings. But Democrats were, were of course, much happier to talk. And, and I talked to Jen Jordan, who is then a state senator who ended up running for attorney general, um, who raised all sorts of alarms at the time of Rudy Giuliani's hearings. And she just said, basically, succinctly, three words, I feel vindicated, Right. Um, these were folks who at the time, and, and remember, it wasn't just Democrats, it was Republicans. Some of them were a lot shyer and, and, and private, more private than others. But then we had folks like Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling. Gabe Sterling actually even held his own press conference on the day of Rudy Giuliani hearing, one of the hearings, and saying, hey, these are lies and falsehoods. Do we want to go through each one of them? He called them a whack-a-mole. Every time one conspiracy theory popped up. He had to smack it on the head and get to the next one. So we had, it, it, to me, this was a flashback of one of the most tumultuous eras that I've ever covered, that I've ever been through in Georgia politics. And I remember being at the hearings, it was packed. It was in the middle of the pandemic, so people were wearing masks. And I, I could not, there was, it, one of the hearings went for seven hours. I didn't stay for the whole one. I, I, I think I listened to it online, the rest of it. Uh, but just the scene of Giuliani leaving a very crowded committee room, Gabe Sterling downstairs having his own press conference. In the middle of this, there was a Senate runoff campaign where the at stake was Joe Biden's first term agenda and control of the U.S. Senate. I mean, what a heady time. And now we have this flashback to it where we have Giuliani conceding that, hey, I wasn't exactly truthful when I said all those things about these two election staffers. And I think, you know, choices were made. There were, you know, Republicans controlled the legislature. They, for the most part, controlled who got to speak at those meetings. And I remember even in real time, there were Democrats saying, don't let, don't give Rudy Giuliani this platform. He hasn't been telling the truth. And even, like you said, other Republicans saying, hey, we don't think Giuliani is telling the truth. We don't think he deserves this platform. But there were, you know, the chairs of the committee and, and prominent Republicans in the General Assembly who decided to allow him to have his say in this very official atmosphere of these hearings. And, you know, that's why Rudy Giuliani is very exposed, not just with the defamation lawsuit, but, you know, with the Department of Justice inquiry, with perhaps the Fulton County inquiry, um, because it's when you testify before legislative bodies, you're expected to tell the truth. And his admission that he wasn't, again, leaves him vulnerable. We don't know if they're looking at him for potential um, criminal charges. We know he's facing losing his law license and being disbarred because of the election lies he told. So there have been consequences for Rudy Giuliani and there could be more. But even those who gave him the platform, partially, I'm I'm wondering if one of the reasons why they didn't have much to say to you, Greg, is because they're worried about their own uh, potential exposure 
um, for 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 facilitating these lies to be told in legislative hearings. Yeah, we haven't got any word from any of the investigators that individual lawmakers um, could be in trouble. Although, of course, um, there is there is scrutiny of the of those who are fake electors, and there's there's one state senator, Sean Still, who who served as a fake elector, um, who's in the the spotlight, so to speak, from Fonnie Willis's. Um, special grand jury probe uh, that is still ongoing that we're, st- we're expecting to hear results of any, any moment. Um, but at the same time, we also know that uh, she has interviewed the grand jury has interviewed Giuliani. And so when she announces charges, there is a potential that Rudy Giuliani is also included in any potential indictments, but we will see. We haven't heard anything firm about that, but you're right Tia. Rudy Giuliani's legal troubles are far from over. Okay, let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. Your host, Greg Bluestein. Patricia Murphy is on a well-deserved vacation. Tia Mitchell is here from Washington to join us. Uh, we are not just your two hosts today, but we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you can get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar, just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, so you always know what's really going on. Tia, while we're talking about elections and election fraud claims and Rudy Giuliani, let's, let's now talk about the mounting conservative opposition to Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, over his more recent decision not to upgrade Dominion voting machine software. A letter we obtained for the jolt that was penned by five powerful Georgia Republicans added to the chorus of conservatives who are against Raffensperger's decision not to upgrade the software. Uh, they say that you know his, his counterproposal to increase penalties for election tampering would, quote, pose no real improvement. What this goes back to is, is, is a long dispute. Raffensperger has been at the center of all sorts of Republican pushback for years now. But this particular battle goes back to a dispute over a federal judge's decision to unseal a report by a scientist who said he found critical vulnerabilities that could flip votes if exploited. Raffensperger's critics say he should take these considerations far more seriously. But he points to a separate report commissioned by Dominion, the voting software company, saying the real-world danger of hacking an election is so remote because layers of testing, audits, and physical security are in place. 
Tia, this just seems like a continuation of all the backlash we saw against Raffensperger in 2020 and, and possibly a preview of 2026, a long way out, but yeah. as Republicans jockey for, for attention uh, ahead of that election. Yeah, and to me, this is also a continuation of just kind of Dominion voting systems being vilified, again, mostly by President Trump and his allies because they're a big company and they supply a lot of the voting machines to many states, including Georgia. And there was a lot of misinformation put out about how Dominion voting machines work and their vulnerabilities. Um, also, a lot of misinformation put out about how common voter fraud is, the type of voter fraud that consists of tampering with ballots or tampering machines is very rare. Um, the type of voter fraud that more commonly gets prosecuted is more along the likes of someone voting more than once or casting a ballot for a deceased person. But even that is pretty rare. Mm -hmm, um, rare. So, but that's still the atmosphere. Now, I want to say I'm old enough to remember. I got to go all the way back to, I think, 2018. When there was a discussion about new voting machines and again, in Georgia, Republicans are in charge. They wanted these Dominion voting machines. There was a concern about should we go to hand mark paper ballots um, that, quite frankly, some of the voting rights groups had advocated for. And the Republican leadership said no. Now, again, I 2018 it was almost a lifetime ago. So much yeah. has happened since then. But it's just so ironic that it hasn't been that long. These machines are not that old. These are the machines, the Republican leadership, and quite frankly, most of the rank and file fell in line with accepting. And now because of kind of the messiness surrounding the 2020 election, they're being called into question. Um, one more point. That being said, I think there are people who say, well, Secretary of State Raffensperger, the election right now is 16 months away. You're trying to resist changes that we could implement safely right now because there's plenty of time. And I think it is harder for him to make the argument that there's not enough time to transition Um because he's talking about, I, and I know there will be other elections between now and then, but the big election is 16 months away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We And we did get Brad Raffensperger's response to that letter, and there's other calls uh, on, on Thursday morning, actually. In a statement, his office referred to, and I'm quoting here, irresponsible calls to install new software prior to thorough testing with Georgia systems, despite the obvious risks of that approach. They're saying they don't have enough time to thoroughly test it, that this this is not really needed. And they went on to say, quote, those same people would probably also criticize Secretary Raffensperger for installing software without thorough testing. Basically saying that the secretary is in a no-win position. As our colleague Mark Nisi wrote about in a big piece earlier this week, so he's getting hit by the right by Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones and other Republicans. He's getting hit by the left by folks who say that there's not enough security, that they need, that they need more safeguards in place against these hackers, uh, these potential hackers. Um, and there is a, a sort of inflection point this week, too, because Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones is sitting down face to face 
with Secretary Raffensperger for, for a big meeting over this. I don't think, I don't know if we'll hear much about what happened in that meeting, but we know they are at least sitting down to talk over the potential options each of those two men have. Yeah, and I think, I do think Raffensperger's in a no-win because he's being pushed from both sides. Because again, the folks on the left were like, we said we wanted paper mark ballots anyways. And then those on the right, I think, quite frankly, want to get rid of Dominion voting machines altogether. They might not be saying it that far. And I'm not saying the five Republicans who wrote this letter are saying that, but I'm saying on like the the those tried and true Trump folks, you know, I think they're pretty much poisoned against Dominion, quite frankly, at this point. And so I think it's going to be tough for Raffensperger. However, I would say generally Georgia voters trust him. We saw that with the election. He did really well among Republicans and Democrats. I think people feel like he's um, honest. They feel like he's done a good job managing elections and that he knows what he's talking about. So I think politically it's it's some rough times for the secretary of state. But I don't know how much that would affect him, you know, long term because rank and file Georgians, I think, trust him. Yeah, and uh, and some data from one of the AJC's latest polls showed that about 73%, and this was back in January of 2023, about 73% of registered voters said they were very confident or somewhat confident that November's general election was conducted fairly and accurately. That was a pretty big shift from 56% of voters expressing confidence back in January 2022. Uh, the poll also found that a majority said Georgia's voting law that passed after the 2020 election, the, the voting law we were just talking about earlier, did not have a significant impact in their level of confidence. It made no difference to about 52% of poll respondents. Tia, let's talk now about the major deal struck by UPS and the Teamsters Union. UPS, of course, being one of Georgia's most significant companies headquartered right here in Metro Atlanta and Sandy Springs. Uh, they reached a deal, a tentative deal, but a deal nonetheless on a new labor contract to avert a strike, keeping 340,000 workers on the job and the logistics pipeline in Georgia and the rest of the country moving. Uh, because this was interesting. There was bipartisan celebration from both the White House and Republicans about this agreement that avoided a strike that could have slowed down the U.S. economy. I think it's hard to fathom what could have been the fallout if the UPS drivers had gone on strike. But I think there was a lot of nervousness because we have recent examples of what happens when our supply chain gets screwed up. We remember, you know, early in the coronavirus 19 pandemic when there were all the lockdowns and, the, and you know, people didn't really know how they were going to navigate this new normal and store shelves were bare and deliveries of packages took forever. And, um, UPS is such a global kind of, it's such a global mechanism used to get things all around. It's not just person to person packages, but businesses use UPS again to deliver the goods we may have ordered online and probably other things in the supply chain that are kind of even more behind the scenes. And so nobody wanted to see a UPS strike. And that's, you know, that's bipartisan. Brian Kemp doesn't want it because it's a major employer in Georgia. Um, it's a company based in Georgia. 
President Biden doesn't want it because, again, we're talking about the supply chain and effects nationwide. Mayor Dickens doesn't want it because it's it's a big employer of um, Atlanta people. So this just kind of, to me, wanting to avoid a strike kind of crossed um, partisan lines because it just would have been so bad across the board. Yeah, and Republicans who are no friend of labor unions still praise the deal, as you said. Uh, I was really interested in the comment you highlighted from Congressman Rich McCormick, the first-term Republican, whose district in- encompasses parts of suburban Atlanta. And remember, UPS is headquartered right there in Sandy Springs. He said, quote, countless families across America rely on both our nation's robust shipping industry and the dedicated men and women who get things where they need to go. This is good news for everyone. So Tia, that kind of encapsulates the uh, the bipartisan support for averting what could have been a devastating strike. Right. And I think it's just interesting that there was even still a nod to collective bargaining. Don't get me wrong, Congressman McCormick and none of the Republicans, I think, are, like you said, big union fans. But, you know, at the end of the day, UPS workers are unionized. And it's a lot of them. Over 300,000 UPS workers are represented by the Teamsters Union. So they had to dance with the union to get something done and avoid a strike. That's just the political reality. And so, number one, I think it showed the power of the unions. We're seeing a lot of unions flexing their muscle with the Hollywood unions on strike. And and um, we've seen things with the uh, the train workers, the union representing uh, train workers. So there has been renewed attention on unions and collective bargaining. And at the end of the day, they can shut things down if they if they want to. Well, Tia, we're going to keep on monitoring the fallout of that. Again, it's a tentative agreement, but there's there's all, all signs point to it being a permanent one soon. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Well, now it is time for the Politically Georgia Podcast Hotline. You can call the hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here, right now on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B and his legion of interns, including new staffer Kate, who's in charge of all those interns, you need an assistant for all the interns. Uh, he is it's a lot by. to manage, Greg. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's a lot. And I think the harder job for you, Shani B, is, you know, as many calls as we get is finding one or two just perfect ones because we got a deluge this week. But we're really looking for really two perfect ones. So did you did you find maybe just one or two that we can use? Okay. So this week, let's do one from the hotline and one from the good old fashioned mailbag. Okay. Okay, so we'll start with the mailbag. This comes from Beth in Hull, Georgia. And Beth asks, has Governor Kemp released any of the funds that he put on hold after the budget was passed? Did he ever explain why he put them on hold? Well, Beth, that's a really good question. And let's let's just go back to what this actually means. Governor Kemp vetoed about $30 million in projects approved by lawmakers earlier this year. He said there would be holes in the state budget because a potential recession is looming. So he's worried about some financial storm clouds brewing in the distance. But more shocking to lawmakers and to others at the Capitol was the more than $200 million in spending that, that Governor Kent put on hold. In all, he directed agencies to ignore about 130 budget line items, many that were near and dear 
to Georgia Republican lawmakers and Democratic lawmakers who who push these these items. Uh, let me give you an example. They include holds of twenty six million dollars on retiree raises, six million dollars for free meals for school children, six million dollars for bonuses for school custodians. Uh, right now, these holds are still very much in place. Uh, we haven't heard any update on whether or not they're going to be relinquished. We don't expect them, uh, for the most part, to be lifted. Um, this is just part of a power that the governor holds, short of he can line item veto certain items on the budget, but he can also instruct agencies to disregard them. And again, these were 33 pages of budget vetoes and procedural decisions that, that we call budget disregards. Uh, that show the power of the governor's office and show that he has, you know, he he can still sign a budget that includes billions of dollars and a, a record large budget that also includes tax refunds and and property tax cuts and, and the rest, but at the same time hold back on certain funding in this way. So as to the question of did he ever explain why he put them on hold, um, the governor's staff kind of basically pointed to the same thing I mentioned earlier, the, the the storm clouds brewing in the distance, the worry that although the budget situation is strong right now, in the not-so-distant future, things get turned sour pretty quick. Shani B., what else we got? Next up is our call to the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. And I've got to remind our listeners that uh, there's one rule to the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. If you don't leave a name, I give you a name. So this week, we hear from Obadiah Palmer from North Carolina, who has a question about the proposed public safety training center. When it comes to the cop city debate, uh, what is the current status of the petition drive to put the measure on the ballot? And how do you see this issue affecting the future of Mayor Andre Dickens and all the city council members who voted for cop city? Go Braves, go dogs. I love it. Go Braves, go Talks. Um, he remembered the plug for his teams, but he did not remember his name, which is hilarious. <laughs> I, and I like the North Carolina native who loves the Braves and the Dogs. I love it. Yeah. Um, so that's a good question because we did um, get a little bit of an update actually this week. The folks behind the ballot referendum that wants to put the planned Atlanta Public Safety Training Center on the ballot Um, later this year, they announced that they had collected 30,000 signatures um, of the needed 70,000 signatures that they hope to get by the August 19th deadline. Now, some caveats. These signatures um, have been collected by volunteers and some paid um, canvassers, but they haven't been verified. And there's kind of a high bar As far as like they have to be a resident of the city of Atlanta within the city limits, they have to have voted in recent elections. So the fact that they've got 30,000 is like, you know, looks good for them, even though they still have a ways to go in just a few weeks. But we don't know if how many of those 30,000 signatures will be accepted towards their goal of applying to get that initiative on the ballot. Um, So that's the update. Now, the bigger question that Obadiah asked was about how this could affect Mayor Dickens and the city council members. And I'm assuming he means the majority of the council members who support building the public safety training center. I think it's having a short term effect on causing some residents 
to disagree. I think there are definitely voters in Atlanta who disagree with this. And they therefore, this is something where they disagree with Mayor Dickens. There's disappointment in that disagreement. There's anger in that disagreement. But what I think it's too early to tell, especially because Mayor Dickens, for example, has a couple more years before he's back on the ballot. It's too early to tell whether this one disagreement is going to stick and be enough for people to abandon him when it's time to decide whether they want to elect him to another term. Because we know no one or very few people agree with politicians 100% of the time. People move on, bigger things, other things happen that takes their attention away. So there's a lot of time for Mayor Dickens to do other things that either builds goodwill or quite frankly, further erodes it. Now, you know, one thing is this public safety training center is not going away. Dickens and the other members of the council say they're going to build it, that the opposition is not going to stop them, which means this one thing that is creating a lot of anger is not going to go away. But I think it's too early to tell whether it will really have a lasting impression because we don't know what else will be on voters' minds when re-election comes back around. You're exactly right. I always tell folks, I always remind them about 2020. As 2020 was launched, as 2020 began, the big narrative was, oh, this will be a referendum on Donald Trump's impeachment. And then, of course, it wasn't. (laughs) Then, of course, by the summer, Donald Trump's impeachment was a distant memory. And we were all talking about, of course, the global health pandemic and and, uh, the, the push for uh, racial equity uh, and uh, Black Lives Matter and the other movements that were sweeping the nation. So a lot can change, but right now, certainly, you know, this is this is the issue that has dominated Mayor Dickens' first term so far. Um, it is something that he has staked his agenda on. Right? It is not something. It was. I'm not saying it was a minor story because it was an important story. It was an important. It was an important issue during his election campaign back in 2021. But it wasn't the dominant story back in 2021, right? It wasn't the dominant factor. We wrote about it at the AJC, but it wasn't sort of the sun that everything kind of revolved around. And now for better, or for worse for him, um, he's staking a huge part of his agenda and his capital and his political capital and his attention on uh, this issue. And as we wrote earlier this week in the AJC, it's an issue that has divided Democrats, right? And it is in a way unified Republicans because all Republicans have sort of gotten behind this idea for the public safety project and condemning the demonstrators, the protesters, the activists who are against it. Meanwhile, as you mentioned, uh, it's a huge majority in the city council, 11-4 vote for just a few weeks ago, but there's still a significant thread. There's a significant group of liberals in Georgia and beyond. Of course, this has become a national story um, who oppose this idea. It's this unity between protesters who are against the environmental uh, degradation that this would cause, you know, the the cutting down of trees and removal of Greenland, in addition to, of course, those who say that there should not be new investment in law enforcement at a moment like this. So it's dividing some Democrats, it's uniting Republicans. Right now it's a major story, but who is to, who's to tell by 2025 if it will still be this sort of dominant thread, this dominant narrative, and how many of the people who are up in arms against it will show up at the ballot box and be active forces in the electorate because um, some of them aren't from Atlanta. We have no idea how many, but some of them don't live in the city of Atlanta and can't vote in an election in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, we'll see if 
someone who can rally the other side, can rally those opponents of the public safety project, even runs for office. Um, you know, the, right now there's a lot of speculation about whether Mary Norwood would mount yet another bid, but she certainly won't energize the people against this project as sort of the more conservative quasi-Republican member of the city council. Right. And I think there's also, yes, the protest turning violent has turned off Republicans for sure. I think there are some Democrats who don't necessarily like the fact that there has been violence at this site. Um, And then I think there are some Democrats who, you know, maybe don't feel as passionately uh, as some of the activists as well about um, wanting to oppose the public safety training center. However, at the end of the day, Atlanta is still, you know, a democratic leaning city. It's a, you know, relatively progressive leaning city as far as, you know, most of the folks that get elected to office are far from conservative. So I think even those who aren't necessarily in lockstep with the opposition to the public safety facility see some of the merits of the opposition, some of the concern about the price tag on the facility and and the concern that maybe city dollars could be more wisely spent elsewhere on other priorities. That's just one example. Um, concern about over-policing, the militarization of policing. Um, cons- and again, the environmental concerns out there at the Entrenchment Creek Park, which is near where the facility is being built. When I covered DeKalb County back in 2017 and 2018, I was writing about environmental activism in that area, which even preceded the plans. Back then, it was just like the rumor that, oh, they're going to take this city of Atlanta property and where right now is the gun range and they're going to put a big facility on there. And even then there was questions and concerns about it. So, um, I don't I think the Republicans, again, the violence and the fact that, you know, someone was killed there um, in ways that, quite frankly, weren't the most transparent because the law enforcement officers didn't have body cameras. But also people don't like the idea that someone was shooting at law enforcement. So but Republicans run the risk of just zeroing in on the violence and not taking a pause to consider the issues being raised by the opposition. And that's where I think someone perhaps like Mary Norwood um, might not get much traction because a lot of Atlantans may not, they say, I may not be throwing Molotov cocktails from the trees, but I have some concerns about this amount of money being spent for this facility. Yeah. It's, it's way in the future, but one of the, sort of the fears I've heard from Dickens supporters is that Mariner runs, siphons off some of his support. Uh, a, a more liberal, progressive, anti-public safety center advocate runs and siphons off his his support from the left. And then he's real, you know, then he's, then he's in trouble. Um, the other concern, of course, is that a lot of his supporters would just stay home. Um, a lot of folks who might have supported him in 2021 who are upset about this might just stay home. There's a lot more to come on this, obviously. We'll we'll see how this petition drive goes. We'll also see how Andre Dickens and the and his administration uh, reacts and continues to push this agenda. Yeah, I was just going to make that point. Yeah. I do think there's um, a teaching moment, some learning that the mayor and his staff are going through because 
um, early on, it came across that he wasn't taking it seriously, that he wasn't doing some of the outreach. You know, he had this advisory committee and then they felt sidelined Mm -hmm. and that they were just being used as puppets. So I do think this also is it's one thing to say, you know, you run for mayor, you have these ideas. But when when you get tested, either you learn from it and, and grow or it sets you back. And so I think that's the challenge for Mayor Dickens is to learn some lessons from this and grow so that he can get people back on his side and and not be painted as someone who's tone deaf and taking his base for granted. Well, now it is time for our who's up and who's down. This is, we always like to end on a high note. Tia, who's your who's down for the week? I'm going to go with the obvious choice, Rudy Giuliani. Um, I don't know how you can admit you lied on someone and still win a defamation lawsuit. I think he's going to try, don't get me wrong, but it seems like he's made it much harder to prevail in that defamation suit. Yeah, I'm going to go with the obvious too. Great minds, I guess. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this is just is not the end of his legal problems. He could still be disbarred uh, he could face criminal charges when Fonnie Willis announces her indictment decisions in the next few weeks. And right now is the time where we're all thinking about the two people who he maligned, right? Uh, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, whose lives were literally thrown into tumult, you know, upended by these lies, who, who, couldn't, who felt like they couldn't leave their house, who had to go in hiding, who couldn't use the real name out and about because they were worried about getting hounded and doxxed by conspiracy theorists who believed Rudy Giuliani's lies, which he's now conceding are indeed lies. Tia, who's your who's up for the week? So I'm going to go with the Teamsters. Um, the Not just the National Union, but we know there's a really uh, some local chapters in the Atlanta area. And I know those local officers and national officers are, number one, nobody wants to strike, but I think they're happy that they were able to get to a tentative agreement that they felt like they protected their workers and got some good assurances from UPS. So I'm going to say the Teamsters. You know, you can tell we don't coordinate because because <laughs> we have the same exact answers. I'm also saying UPS. Uh, That's the Teamsters, hilarious. Yeah, and the consumers, right? I mean, the Teamsters, the part-time workers under this deal would get now $21, at least $21 an hour immediately. And these are part-time workers. Uh, a strike would have crippled shipping across the country. It would have affected you and me. It would have affected consumers. It would have affected the global shipping pipeline, affecting millions of deliveries a day and damaging UPS's reputation with customers. So uh, this agreement is a win, I think, for all. Well, since we had the same one, just to give us some variety, my <laughs> honorable mention is Cody Hall, Governor Kemp's spokesman, because he got hired by the DeSantis campaign. Now, I don't know if he considers that a good thing or a bad thing because he's just got he added a whole lot of headaches to his plate. (laughs) But I think to be asked to serve in this way really is a testament to what Cody Hall has done for Governor Kemp here in Georgia. So um, I think that is a cause for saying he's up this week. And then goes and and then you end up getting a reboot of the campaign right after he gets hired. So they, they ended up shelving a number of staffers. But uh, Cody Hall, who is serving as one of their communication strategists, 
is on board with DeSantis at a time where he needs all the help he can get with this reboot underway and him still firmly in second place here in Georgia. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.